0: The purpose of all things is that all things glorify God. That's the reason that He created a universe. That's the reason He created you and I, to ultimately glorify Him. And what we mean by glorifying Him is essentially display who He is. So this morning we're going to talk about some more about who God is, because in order to glorify Him... It's important that we know who he is and understand his nature. And his perfections, I call them, prefer that over attributes. You and I have attributes, but because of sin, our attributes are tainted, distorted. We're in the image of God, but that has been defaced as a result of the fall. So I prefer to call God's attributes perfections. Now, I'm just giving you an introduction, and we'll continue this morning introducing this whole area. And last week I tried to emphasize how important it is. And we looked at it because if you're worshiping a God that is not the God of the Bible, you are actually into idolatry. So I spent some time talking about what idolatry is all about. And it's essentially conceiving of and thinking about and worshiping a God that is not the God of the Bible. So that means that even if you're involved in a Bible teaching church, if you have a distorted view of God, to that extent you are into idolatry. Secondly, I said that this is the emphasis from Scripture or of Scripture. The Bible begins, in the beginning, Elohim And it ends with the grace of God, the very last verse. So it speaks of God and begins expounding, explaining, revealing who God is. The whole Bible, essentially, is an exposition of who God is. Story about him. Thirdly, we said that uh, your understanding of God is going to affect your theology. In other words, everything else that you believe. If you have a distorted view of God, everything else that you believe, or theology, is distorted. So it's a key to theology. And your thinking, or your ideas, or your theology has an impact on how you live. You 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 work out what you really believe. What you really and truly believe works itself out in the way that you live, unconsciously. In fact, you're unaware of it. So your thinking, your theology is going to affect your living, so who God is is a foundation to all uh, living and everything that you do, so all your activities. Fifthly, we said that it's the basis of worship. You can't worship the God of the Bible unless you know the God of the Bible, unless you know who he is, or the God of reality. The God of the Bible is the true God. Everything else is a false God, every other concept of God. And the final reason that I gave, and there's others, but these are enough, in fact, it took almost our whole hour to develop these six, I said, God desires that you know him. And I gave you a couple of passages that kind of highlight that idea, but God revealed himself, God created a universe in order that he be known, that he be glorified, so It's God's desire that we come into a not only a relationship, but a knowledge of Him. So we will continue with that, and we concluded last time with our, actually, inability, or the issue is, what capability or what ability do we have to know God? And basically, I said that uh, because of a biblical concept... The concept of God's incomprehensibility, apart from what God has revealed, we have no capability to know him. Now that's pretty basic, that's pretty fundamental, but a lot of Christians are not aware of that. And what the scriptures indicate is that if we try to figure out who God is through just reasoning, we will always end up with a distorted view of God. Science, you can't test the spiritual realm, you can't conduct an experiment to reveal who God is. So science is silent when it comes to understanding who God is. Apart from general revelation, science can discover some things. But generally, if you are only using science, you'll end up with a distorted view of God. Now, one of the things we're going to get into is these distortions and all of these distortions that I'm going to give you concerning who God is, these false views, come as a result of men basically using their intellect and using whatever resources to come up with a concept of God and without the revelation, you end up with all of these false views that we'll look at somewhat briefly this morning. Make sense? So we were looking at God's incomprehensibility. You cannot conceive of the God of the Bible apart from what God has revealed in his scriptures. So I can't hammer that home too emphatically. Every conception that we attempt to come up with in terms of who God is will always be a distortion. And it'll fall short. Depending upon our worldview, depending upon all of the influences that we have upon us, depending upon our fallenness in terms of distortion of thinking. So we need revelation, and apart from that, God is incomprehensible. So we're going to continue looking at that concept of his incomprehensibility. So God, Tozer says, he is not exactly like anything that you can conceive of, Or anybody. Now you can look at mankind, and because mankind is created in the image of God, you can see some aspects, there is some revelation there. But if that is all you're looking at, and most gods are formed after the image of man, and that's a distortion of the one true God because of the sinfulness of man. So he is not exactly like anything or anybody. He is different. That's the holiness of God. He is separate. He is different. He is other than anything else. Some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence. So even if you have a biblical understanding of who God is, that will never exhaust our understanding of who God is. And I believe that even when we go to be with him and our minds are purified, and sin is removed from our thinking, even when we go to be with him, there are some aspects of God that we will never understand. Because God is incomprehensible, even to a finite, glorified creature. So we will never exhaust, in fact, we will spend all of eternity continuing to get to know the one true God. We'll have no hindrances so it'll be an exciting everyday experience to discover new aspects of the God that we worship here in now. So some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence, W.G.T. Shedd, another theologian. So that's the issue that we're looking at here. We concluded with Matthew 11.27 where it says, this is Jesus speaking. And no one knows the Son. So you can study, you can uh, reason, you can look at history, and you will never understand the Son. And it says no one knows the Son. You'll never come into a correct and reality look at the Son. The only one that does, it says, (coughs) except the Father. The Father is the only one that knows the Son. Nor does anyone know the Father. We have no concept of the Father. In fact, here you have the Son and the Father together. This is why the doctrine of the Trinity is so difficult, is because it is part of this incomprehensibility of God. We would never come up with a doctrine of the Trinity on our own. In fact, this is a good test of all of the false thinking, false theologies, false religions, Probe the issue of the Trinity. Every single one of them deny the Trinity. All of the cults deny the Trinity in some way or another. Because we would never come up with that doctrine. But we come up with a doctrine as biblical theology, in fact, as part of orthodoxy, because that is what the scriptures reveal concerning who God is. So no one knows the Father except the Son and... Here's the key. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. That is the only way that we come into an accurate and a biblical and a real understanding of who God is. So if you want to understand Jesus Christ, if you want to understand the Father, we are utterly dependent on what God has revealed about himself. Not what we conceive of or not what we even pray about. It's dependent on his word and what he has revealed. So that's the key right there. So there's a difference between the incomprehensibility of God and the knowability of God. In other words, we have an ability to know God through revelation, but that God that we can know through revelation is incomprehensible to finite man apart from God's enabling and God's revelation. Is that clear? Now, this is where we ended last time. Let's look up a couple of other passages. Would somebody look up 1 Corinthians 2.14? Who wants to do that? Connie? And somebody look up Psalm 145.3. Here are just a couple of more passages. I gave you last week Job 11.7, where Job asks the question... Can you discover the depths of God? And the implied answer is no. No one can discover the depths of God. In other words, you will never exhaust who God is. You'll never go deep enough to have an omniscient view of who God is. When we go to be with the Lord, we will not become omniscient beings. That's a perfection that only belongs to God. Our understanding will be enhanced and we'll know more. But we will never become omniscient, because to become omniscient would be to become God. We will always remain finite. Make sense? So, even when we go to be with the Lord, we will not discover the depths of God. And certainly not now in sinful bodies. If you ask a second question, can you discover the limits of the Almighty? In other words, can you find out the extent of who God is, the limits? And you can't because what? God is infinite. He has no limits. Very good. So we will never be able to understand God. That's what we mean by incomprehensibility. It means, left by ourselves, we will not come up with a proper understanding of God. And it also means that we will never exhaust or never come to a total or, an, I could say, an omniscient understanding of the God of the Bible. Because we're finite creatures. So let's take a look at another verse. I gave you Psalm thirty-nine, six last time. Isaiah fifty-five, Romans eleven. Let's look at 1 Corinthians two, fourteen. You want to read that one loudly? But the natural man does not receive the Spirit of God. Now, who is the natural man? Unregenerate man. In other words, does not have the Spirit of God indwelling. Does not have regeneration. That's the natural man in this context. Keep reading. For their foolishness to him. Now that their spirit discern. discerned. Okay, he cannot, and the New American Standard says, cannot understand. He has not the capability to understand spiritual things. We don't have the capacity to be able to see beyond the physical and to understand who God is. Because he's incomprehensible. If you want to use an, an illustration or an analogy... Get real silent. Don't say a word. Listen real carefully. Did you know that, uh, all of the radio stations that are online right now are filling this room with broadcast sounds, if you will? Some of them music, some of them voices, whatever, talk. But if you are very silent, can you hear it? You can't hear a thing. Because we do not have the capacity. We do not have the ability to be able to pick up those radio waves that are bouncing off the walls and are filling this room with radio broadcasts. Same with television. We can't see the images. And yet this room is full of those radio waves and those visual images. But we have no capability. We need a receiver. You need a radio that can receive them and transmit them in a form that we can understand. The scripture is like that receiver in that it reveals to us who God is. Apart from that revelation, we have no capability. That's first Corinthians chapter two. Jim. Uh, just the passage. Well the Old Testament believer had a revelation, as we do, that's why the Scriptures are so important. From that revelation, I think the Old Testament believer had a capacity or an ability to know and understand God. In fact, we're going to look at some verses in a moment here that are Old Testament along those lines. So I think he had the ability of God. In other words, he had the capability, but he was still in the same way through revelation. Now, we have the advantage of having the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that can help us to interpret and to understand that revelation in a clearer and in a better sense. So we are at an advantage in terms of the Old Testament believer. But he had some capability, and I'm not sure I can kind of draw a line and say up to this point, and then we have more than that. But we do have an advantage because we do have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Makes sense? In fact, there's a biblical concept that we describe, theologians describe, as progress of revelation, where God reveals more and more in his scriptures as more and more of it is revealed and given as inspiration. So we have the entire New Testament that the Old Testament does not, or the Old Testament saint does not. So we have more capability, I would say. So let's look at the next verse there, Psalm 145.3. This also indicates incomprehensibility. You had it. Greatest and greatly His greatness. Okay. His greatness is what? You could say incomprehensible. His greatness is incomprehensible or unsearchable. In other words, you can't search for it. You can't perform an experiment. You can't reason your way to it. It's unsearchable beyond our capability. So there's a few verses that indicate that, and there's others that imply the same thing that are not as clear as the ones that I gave you. So that's the incomprehensibility of God. Fundamental, very important, but a lot of Christians are not aware of this concept of God. But God is also not only incomprehensible, but he is knowable. So let's look up some passages that speak of his knowability. Don't separate those two. No ability, not no ability. <laughs> <laughs> Deuteronomy, who wants to do Deuteronomy four? Pat. Jeremiah twenty four. Somebody Jenny. Psalm nine ten. Alright. First Chronicles twenty eight nine. You got it? And a very important one. Well, first of all, first John five, who wants to do first John five? Alright? And the very important one, John 1.18. Very important passage. Great. Got it? First of all, Deuteronomy 4.35. That you might know is God. Okay, what does that verse tell you? To you it has been shown. In other words, it's been revealed to you. He's talking about to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. And in fact, in a very special way... God has used the nation of Israel to be God's revealers of who he is. It's the nation of Israel that received the Pentateuch through Moses. And this verse indicates that it's to you, the children of Israel, his chosen nation, that God has shown himself. And it says that you might know the Lord that you may come into an understanding, a knowledge of the Lord. They had a concept of God, but it was what? What kind of a... Well, it was wrong. It was distorted. It was Egyptian, which is a distorted view of God. They came out of Egypt, and they had many gods. But it's to them that this revelation is now made known, so that means that God is knowable. And when we say, ability is not that he's unintelligible, but we cannot frame any idea concerning who God is on our own, we need his revelation. So incomprehensible, all our ideas of God are incomplete as well. So we can't have an accurate conception of who he is, and he's incomprehensible also in the sense that all of the ideas that we have are incomplete concerning him. So let's read Jeremiah 24-7. Who's got it? Verse 7. Yes. I will give them a heart to for I am the Lord. The whole heart. Okay. This is Jeremiah. Now he's talking about the new covenant. And this partially answers what Jim answered in terms of the distinction between the new and the old testament. So there's an added capability. But the point being of that verse is that it comes from him. It's, it's his revelation. And when he's talking about giving them a new heart, he's talking about that regeneration that uh, the New Testament talks about. Does that make sense, Jim? So here's an added concept in terms of uh, the difference between Old and New Testament. Is that was Jeremiah. That was Jeremiah twenty four seven. Who's got uh, First Chronicles twenty eight nine? And these are just a few of them. If you want some more, you can look up Psalm nine ten. I didn't give that one to anyone, right? Yes, oh, I did. Okay, let's do Psalm uh, 9.10 first. Okay, those who know the name, and remember the name is not just a label, knowing the name of the Lord is knowing His essence, His character, His nature, His person. The name stands for the person. So he's addressing the psalmist here, those who know your name will put their trust in you. In other words, they will realize that they are utterly dependent upon you and in need of you. But it starts with knowing the person of God. I think Chronicles, is that the next one? 28.9. 1 Chronicles 28.9. As for you, I the God of your father. The Lord searches all you Okay, there's two things in that verse. Did you notice? Solomon knows the Lord. As for you, Solomon, know the Lord. Encouragement to know him. Now this is after he's already a king, after he's already been anointed, after God has also worked in him, after he receives promise of, of wisdom, and yet he's encouraged to know God because we don't get a full dose of who God is all at once. This is a lifelong endeavor, knowing the God of the Bible. It's a continual renewing of our mind as Paul encourages in Ephesians chapter 4. We need to continually renew our minds. So this is the Old Testament equivalent of the Ephesians 4 passage. And then the last part there, he will let you find him if you search for him. In other words, with a heart of humility, a heart of desiring to know the one true God, the verse basically tells us we will find that God. In other words, we will come into an understanding of that God. We can find him in that sense. Okay, First John five twenty. Who's got it? Yes. And we know the Son of God has come. We know what? Okay, this is what we know. Now he's going to expound on that. And as in, okay, not only knowledge but understanding. He may know Him, and we are in Him, Jesus Christ, the true God. Okay, this is the true God. This is the God of reality. This is not a false God or a distorted God. This is the God of the Bible, and it's been given to us. Notice that aspect. And John one eighteen, very very key. Go ahead. 118, John one eighteen. No one has seen God at any time because why? He's invisible, he's incomprehensible, no one can visualize him, no one can conceive of him, no one can see him. No one. Keep reading. Okay, he has exegeted him exigeomai is the word there. That's where we get the word exegesis. And what is exegesis? It's taking what God has revealed and opening it up so that people can understand it. That's what exegesis is all about. It's taking the biblical text, expounding upon it, making that biblical text known. That's what exegesis is all about. John one eighteen says there is a the ultimate exegete concerning who God is, is Jesus Christ. Jesus, and it's through him that we have a clear picture of who God is. And what did he say? If you've seen me, you've what? The you've seen the Father. Because he is God. It's part of the idea of the Trinity and the associated with that, the deity of Christ. So if you understand who Jesus is in reality, then you have a clear or clearer picture of who God is. Because Jesus is the exegete that brings to the surface the understanding of the incomprehensible God. And we can know that God, and he desires that we know him. Is that word my? my? Is that used in the passage, no. they don't know that? So no, I don't think it's in that context. That word's not in that context. It only, it only occurs a few times in scripture, and this is one of them. I'm pretty sure it's not in that context. But, you see it illustrated there. In other words, he opened their eyes. I think it's just the common word for opening something. In other words, their eyes or their vision was opened so that they could see who God truly is, or to see him. And you remember, those Emmaus travelers were walking with Jesus in bright sunlight all day long and couldn't recognize him. So it takes revelation, it takes illumination, it takes the Holy Spirit opening our eyes to an understanding of who God is. So that's a good illustration of this principle that we're talking about. So the knowability of God. And that's a good verse to end there. Well, what are the sources of God's revelation? You can come up with a couple of them. you probably come up with the most important one. The Bible. What else? Well, through the Holy, the Holy Spirit is the instrument. We looked at Jesus, that John 1.18, and there's another source of God revealing himself. Creation. Very good. Creation. God has created a universe that has his fingerprints all over it that universe part of its purpose and part of its design is ultimately to glorify god or another way of saying the same thing is the creation reveals something of who god is what does psalm 19:1 say the heavens do what Clear. declare in other words announce or Pronounce or broadcast the what? The glory. the glory of God or the understanding or the attributes of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So if you're an astrophysicist, the first thing you should notice in all of your study is something of who God is just by looking at the vastness of the universe. So it probably should reveal to you something of his eternality maybe. Something of his omnipotence, that a God of omnipotent power could create such a vast universe that we as humans cannot even observe the edges of it. Okay, So general revelation is one of the means. So every area of science should tell you something of who God is. I gave you the Old Testament central passage. The New Testament central passage is Romans 1. And it also speaks of God revealing himself, and this is general revelation. Romans 1, 19-20, because that which is known about God. Speaking of all of humanity here. This is the beginning of the book of Romans. This is God in the book of Romans, or through Paul, telling us why all of mankind is condemned because they have no excuse. Notice the last part of that. Because why? God has revealed himself adequately to every creature such that every creature is responsible for a response. Make sense? Because that which is known, and if you read verse 18, the world is under God's wrath. Because that which is known about God is evident. In other words, it's not fuzzy. Of course, you know, he is incomprehensible and it's not complete. But it's adequate enough that God has revealed himself and God has made it evident to them. And, and this is internal, by the way. Every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth, no matter what period, Old Testament, New Testament, any time, has received an inward understanding or revelation of who God is. Romans 1, 19. So there's no such thing truly as an atheist. Verse 18 also speaks of man suppressing in unrighteousness that revelation. So a so-called atheist is somebody that is suppressed so deeply that he has deceived himself into thinking that there's no God. But in reality, deep down, he knows that there is. Because God has made it evident to them. In an argument with an atheist, say, I know. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, we can say that because it's true. And then the verse goes on, for since the creation of the world, in other words, before man was created, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, in other words, something, or you might even substitute there and translate it perfections, his invisible perfections that you and I cannot come up with, and some examples: His eternal power. If you look at the heavens, you can see something of His eternal power. In fact, elsewhere as well, and something of His divine nature, something of who God is in terms of deity, is made evident through the creation, as the next part says. Have been clearly seen. It's not fuzzy. It's clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, referring back to the creation. In other words, what God has created reveals something of who God is. Some of his attributes, certainly his divine nature, and particularly his divine power. So that any atheist that claims to be an atheist that has been self-deceived, they are without excuse. No one will be able to stand before God and claim that God has not revealed himself to him. Everyone has had an adequate revelation. Now, this revelation is adequate to condemn and bring people to accountability. But this revelation, general revelation, is not adequate to regenerate or to save. Does that make sense? This is why when missionaries go off into these dark areas of the world and they begin to proclaim the means of salvation, the revelation that is needed for salvation, Jesus Christ, and they talk about the God of the Bible, they do get responses from people that have responded positively to this revelation and have been waiting for the revelation that deals with salvation. So it's in Christ and Christ alone, or apart from him, no one comes to the Father. And the missionary has the privilege of saying, well, this is the God that you've been conceiving of, and God has sent me all of these miles from Albuquerque to tell you about the God that not only is the creator, but the God that also saves and removes your condemnation. All right. But the point being, this is general revelation. And it's made evident to every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. So general revelation, special revelation, that's scripture, that's what we've been talking about, that's what these verses are indicating, special revelation. Uh, To you, and we read this one, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. In other words, Yahweh, he is Elohim, and there's no other besides him. He is exclusive. We read this at the beginning of this part of our talk here. That's special revelation. And you can include all those other verses that we looked at as well. And uh, we looked at another verse here. Thirdly, God has revealed himself, especially through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the exegete, and that's that John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. So you can use this verse also throughout history from the beginning of creation. No one has seen God. The only begotten God, that's Jesus Christ, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, in other words, Jesus Christ, has exegeted Him. That's another aspect of special revelation. Based on this passage, you can make a case, and based on other passages, you can make the case that all of those Old Testament theophanies were appearances of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, based on this and other passages like that. One way of harmonizing those. Good question. Okay, that's the means. So, concerning the ability to know God, in ourselves, God is incomprehensible, and we will never have a true and accurate understanding of the God of the Bible. But he's also knowable in that we can know because God has revealed himself and he's revealed himself to all creatures, all men. And what he desires that we do is to continually refine our understanding and focus on how he has revealed himself in in Scripture. Now, there's an issue relating to knowing God versus knowing about God and this is applicable to a lot of people that go to Bible churches that hear a lot of revelation concerning God, but one of the concepts of who God is, is that he is personal, he's a personal being, and it's possible to accumulate and in fact get a PhD in the knowledge of God that is revealed and still not have a real personal relationship with God. And there are some professors that have that some liberal professors, but even that is distorted because ultimately a true understanding leads to a personal understanding. So, J.I. Packer says, a little knowledge of God is greater, of God is greater than much knowledge about him. The much knowledge about him is you can get a PhD in the details or what God has said in his word, you can understand those sentences But there's also a personal element, and that's what he's talking about here, a knowledge of God. Make sense? So it not only involves revelation, it starts with revelation, but it also involves a relationship, and that's what God wants us to enter into. So knowing him, few actually do know him well. That's why even Christians are so easily deceived, is they don't have an adequate biblical understanding or a knowledge of Him, and they don't have a personal knowledge of Him. And just a personal experience, when I was a fairly new believer and didn't have a grounding in God's Word, I was tempted by one of the cults, and it was very attractive, but there was something about it that just didn't sit right in, in, in terms of my spiritual being. I didn't have the biblical knowledge to sort it all out, but I had a sense inwardly that kept me looking, and the first book that I studied from the beginning was the book of Revelation, because they were stressing some prophecy stuff there. That was the first book that I looked at in some detail, and from that, God kind of laid a foundation to be able to sort through that this was a non-biblical cult. I was unaware of cults at that time. So, just that personal relationship understanding is also part of knowing God, but it's always based on His Word and what He has revealed. And few actually do know Him, even within the church. That's why a lot of Christians get deceived by the deceiver. So there's a distinction between an intellectual understanding and a personal understanding. We know Him in relationships, and we are the children of God. So we have this relation to this father-son relationship. And there's lots of images that the Bible uses. It uses the imagery of a husband-wife, Ephesians 5. It's always in terms of a relationship. It's always personal. Or the shepherd and the sheep. The shepherd hear his voice and know the shepherd. That's John 10. These are images that the Bible gives us to convey this idea of the knowledge of God. We know him as king, and we are his subjects. Kingdom of God, the whole theme of kingdom of God, and you and I as part of that kingdom. But it's always relationships. You see these relationships? These are images. These are pictures of that relationship of knowing God. So knowing him involves that personal aspect, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's in our relationship to him. That's that John one eighteen passage. And there's always grace involved because we do not deserve anything from God, and beginning with even an understanding of who He is. So it's always on the basis of grace. So we are always humbled before Him. And it always is tied, also knowing Him, is tied to obeying Him throughout Scripture. I can give you lots of verses on that one. Those that know Him obey Him. That's kind of a corollary. That's evidence of... Truly knowing him is a willingness and a desire, and this is a natural thing. If you have an or an understanding of the awesome God, you will bow down automatically. Uh, I'm going to give you some examples of some passages of individuals that came into a revelation of God through vision, and all of them were knocked off their feet, flat on their face, because they had a picture of the awesomeness and the majesty and the glory of God. And the same thing happens to us. When that happens, obeying is just kind of a corollary. Is just kind of what follows. So that's somewhat of the difference. Is there time up already? Hmm. We just we just finished the outline sheet from last week. No wonder this one didn't make sense. No wonder this one didn't make sense. Yeah. Okay. Next week we'll pick up on this outline. Sorry about that. I thought I'd get further. Maybe I get too carried away there. So this is a good stop place. Yeah. So next week we'll begin with inferior views so that you can identify that that is false, but you identify that which is false by better getting to know that that is real. What does the Treasury Department do in detecting counterfeit bills? They don't have you look. Yeah, they. Make you so aware of the real thing that when you come up with something that is not real it just stands out. But we we'll want to do both. So who wants to close in a word prayer for us? Go ahead, very yourself. Thinking not only if not catch our breath as we the sunrise or sunset specifically allows us. First relations we see with our Father, our God, our King. See what it looked like. How can I pray, Father, that His feet shut book on our shelves? But then, Amen.